Peter Williams, those of you who wasn't with us last week, Peter's our resident philosopher who makes sure that he's here with Peter and me in, uh, with our feet on the ground, as philosophers always do. Um, Peter's going to talk to us on why I believe in God. Just knock this up and answer the Josh's question. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I pretty much cadged off, um, off the opening address for a debate on God that I had recently at Cardiff University. Um, and if you're interested in seeing that, you can see the, uh, the YouTube video of that debate with uh, Christopher Norris from Cardiff University up online. Um, so here is just a, dipping our toe into a selection of four of the many arguments for God's existence that would... Uh, perhaps open up uh, a debate on the issues. And I'll simply, uh, up on the screen here, just put the, uh, uh, the, the outline, the sketch outline of the, uh, of the arguments that I'm talking about. So uh, let's start with a, a moral uh, argument. Uh, coming to know that the earth goes around the sun was a matter of discovering truth, not inventing it. Now, moral objectivism is the position in ethics that says uh, that ethics is about discovering moral truths that exist even if we fail to discern them. According to moral objectivism, there are genuine moral disagreements. And the observation that people sometimes hold different moral opinions just shows that our moral beliefs can either be correct or incorrect according to the moral facts of the matter. But are there any moral facts? Well, those who point to the reality of evil as a basis for an argument against God certainly seem to think so. For nothing can be objectively evil if there are no objective values. Hence, the atheist philosopher Peter Cave defends moral objectivism by appealing to his intuitions about evil. He says, whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument to the contrary is sound. In other words, the, the properly basic intuition that, say, torturing innocent children for fun is wrong isn't undermined by the existence of the psychopath who enjoys torturing children. By the principle of credulity, torturing an innocent child for fun clearly isn't merely something that stops the child functioning normally, which is an empirical scientific observation, or merely something we dislike because of our evolutionary history, or merely something our society has decided to discourage. Rather, torturing an innocent child for fun is objectively wrong. So at least one thing is objectively wrong. Therefore, moral objectivism is true. Of course, my moral intuitions can be wrong. But this very admission of fallibility presupposes moral objectivism. For if moral subjectivism were true, no moral claims could be objectively false. As the atheist Russ Schaefer-Landau argues, subjectivism's picture of ethics entails a kind of moral infallibility for individuals or societies. This sort of infallibility is hard to swallow. 
Finally, if moral objectivism were false, then it couldn't be true that we objectively ought to consider arguments against objectivism, or that we ought to consider them fairly. Now, in this, we see that to embrace an argument for subjectivism would be to take the self-contradictory position that A, there are no objective moral values, but that B, we objectively ought to accept subjectivism. It seems, then, that moral, uh, objective moral values do exist. However, many atheists argue that if God doesn't exist then objective moral values couldn't exist. For example, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was mentioned a little earlier, he said that he found it, quote, extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good a priori, since there's no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. If objective moral values couldn't exist in a godless reality, and such values do exist, then it follows that reality isn't godless. An objective moral value is a a transcendent ideal that prescribes and obligates our behaviour. But a moral ideal implies a moral character, A prescription requires a prescriber, and an obligation demands a person. As H.P. Owen argued, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Now it's important not to confuse this argument with the false claim that one must believe in God or know in order to know or to do the right thing. Rather the moral argument is concerned with moral ontology not moral epistemology. Secondly, uh, a brief uh, argument from consciousness and, in particular, rationality. There are several aspects of consciousness that resist naturalistic explanation but fit comfortably within a theistic worldview. For example, atheist Patricia Churchlands holds that, boiled down to essentials, a nervous system enables an organism to succeed in the four Fs. Feeding, fleeing fighting and reproducing. The principal, chore, the principal chore of nervous systems is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism can survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost. But if truth, quote, takes the hindmost on naturalism, how can Churchland be confident about the truth of naturalism? In other words, our our rationally inescapable cognitive confidence seems to be at odds with naturalism, and many naturalists argue this. Um, But that trust does stand in a mutually supporting relationship 
with theism. A version of the cosmological argument. Suppose I ask you to loan me a book, but you say, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. Well, suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on. Surely two things are clear. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I'll never get the book. Second, if I get the book, that means that the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the lines of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book without having to borrow it. Likewise, argues Richard Pertill, consider any contingent reality. He says the same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. Now, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin recently affirmed that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Big Bang cosmology describes the evolution of the universe over a finite length of time, but it doesn't explain why the universe exists. Concerning this question, physicist Paul Davies observes, one might consider some supernatural force as being responsible for the Big Bang, or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. It seems to me that we don't have too much choice, either something outside of the physical world or an event without a cause. But a physical event is a contingent reality, and a contingent reality is contingent upon something beyond itself. Hence, every physical event must have at least one cause in a general sense of the term. Now, since the first physical event cannot depend upon a physical reality, there is no prior physical reality to the first one, the finitude of the past highlights the need for a non-contingent and therefore non-physical first cause. That is, one, there was a first physical event. Two, all physical events have at least one cause outside and independent of themselves. Three, therefore the first physical event had at least one cause outside and independent of itself. But four, the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. So five, therefore the first physical event had a non-physical cause. Now quantum mechanics doesn't provide a counterexample to the second causal premise. Even under the Copenhagen interpretation, quantum events happen against a backdrop of physical reality that causally conditions, even if it doesn't causally necessitate, the quantum event in question. Atheist philosopher Quentin Smith confirms that quantum considerations, quote, at most tend to say that a causal laws govern the change of conditions of particles. They state nothing about the causality or a causality of absolute beginnings. 
Since the universe had a beginning, non-theists must either deny our causal premise or claim that every physical event has a physical cause. However, making an exception to our causal premise when it comes to the first physical event is ad hoc, whereas invoking the necessity of physical causation entails an infinite regress. Finally, a version of the design argument from the fine-tuning of the cosmos. Neither uh, complexity without specificity nor specificity without complexity compels us to infer design. However, if you saw a poem written out in alphabet fridge magnets, you'd infer design. Such a pattern is both specified, hits the rules of English grammar, for example, and sufficiently improbable as a contingent event to merit a design inference on the grounds that in all cases where we know the causal origin of such specified complexity, experience has shown that intelligent design played a causal role. Now, such an observation of a criteria for design inference becomes highly significant in light of Stephen Hawking's affirmation, for example, that for life to exist, quote, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. Thank you, Peter. For reasons for considerable thought, questions, please. Lee. I'm a little bit confused between the difference between objective morality mm -hmm. and universal understanding of morality. Right. So what I'm saying is there could be something in our genetic makeup that causes us to experience a thought that something is morally true that's in common. Mm -hmm. And also to label those who don't think that as being ill. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is it not possible that objective morality is effectively universal morality mm. as experienced? And could it not be down to our DNA? Okay. So yes, there is a, indeed a distinction between um, whether or not a moral value is universally believed in and whether or not it is an objective fact. Um, something could be universally believed while still being false. But if an objective moral value is, is a fact, it is still true and a fact, even if no one believed in it. So those are two completely different things. In terms of saying, um, well, maybe, um, no, torturing small children for fun is wrong is not a in fact, but just something that we've been caused to believe by our evolutionary history. Um, the difficulty there is that it's the, it's the kind of full stop at the end of the sentence where all of the metaphysical baggage is put in there. When you say, well, maybe it is because the reason why I believe that, why I have you know, a, a repulsive feeling towards torturing small children for fun is that my evolutionary history has given me that, that feeling or that belief. But it's when you say, full stop, and that, that is all of the explanation, because you still want to ask, is that feeling um, accurately reflecting a fact of the matter or not? If you're kind of assuming, along with mentioning evolution, a, a naturalistic worldview that says that there is nothing supernatural, 
all that's going on is that you have a materialistic process that's given you a certain feeling, well then, in a sense, you're begging the question against the existence of such a non-physical reality as a moral fact. Um, Whereas the moral objectivist could say, well, I'm, I'm happy to grant that the answer to the question, how have I come to, to the moral knowledge that this is an objective moral fact, might well be through my evolutionary history, particularly if there is uh, the possibility of some connection between the way my evolutionary history happens to have gone and the existence of this moral fact. Um, could that moral fact or the being of which it is a part have have set things up such that that is how I came to my knowledge. Um, but, but that's why I separate out the, the, the question of the, the, the knowledge, the epistemology from the, from the ontology. Um, I would simply um, also say that I think in invoking the principle of credulity as I did, um, uh, the, uh, the principle of credulity justifies saying it seems to be a moral fact, therefore it probably is, and and to try and invoke a maybe you're trying to sort of invoke Occam's razor to say well, surely a simpler alternative explanation is that there are no moral facts there's just this naturalistic evolutionary history that happens to have given you a certain feeling um, and if that's the objection I think my response would be um, the adequacy component of Occam's razor is more important than the simplicity bit and the principle of credulity is part of the adequacy bit of Occam's razor. So I don't think Occam's razor trumps the moral intuition. But you're being a dualist there, because to separate epistemology from ontology is rather assumptive, I think. Um, if, if belief is a necessary condition for a fact, I think it is, then there are no transcendental facts, which you seem to say there are. Um, so if everyone power to subjectively believe the wrong thing, it, it doesn't mm. seem to be meaningful to say that they're believing the wrong thing. Because the, the truth is completely within their, their, their shared conscious belief in this, this, uh, this fact. Not fact. But it's, it's their belief in it which uh, partly conditions whether it's a fact or not. So to talk of unbelief and mm. facts is just such a silly path to go down. Okay, well, I think that's where we, we fundamentally disagree then, because I don't think it's a silly path to go down at all. I think just because everybody believes something to be true, that doesn't make it true. Or if everybody believes something to be false, that doesn't make it false. Who's going to tell them they're wrong? It's meaningless to talk of this transcendental fact. But then... It doesn't play any role in their well, it wouldn't play any role in their lives if they don't believe in it, exactly. But I, but I don't think that that epistemological point, nobody knows about a certain fact, means that it's not a fact. I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody um, you know, a couple of hundred years ago knew that the, the cosmos was bigger than the size of the solar system. Well, but we've discovered that it was. Maybe it isn't, and we just all think that it is, because we've been deluded continuously for that long ago. And if we were to later discover that's the case, then the facts would be updated. You see what I'm saying? Our belief 
condition. Yeah. No, well, what you're, what you're actually doing is you're decrying the category of fact and you're reducing the category of fact simply to our subjective opinions about things, which means that you've given up on any criteria of objective truth. That means that we can't have an argument about anything because you're not even going to believe in the objectivity of the rules of logic by which you argue, the meaningfulness of the, meaningfulness of the language which we're using. You're, you're plumping for a complete postmodern scepticism. <laughs> Well, I think any, any, I think any, any logical argumentational communication depends upon a dualistic, dualistic opposition between true and false, <coughs> meaningful and unmeaningful, understood, not understood, etc. Those, those dualisms are, are fundamental to us actually disagreeing with one another. If you agree with me that we're disagreeing with one another, then surely you're agreeing that there is a dualism because you're admitting the possibility of us not agreeing with each no, other. I think it's meaningless to talk about this, this opposed aspect of reality, to say there's a transcendental realm of facts or something. It's, it's a little bit Plato. <coughs> Oh, well, this is a little bit platonic. I would certainly wouldn't go down a platonic route of, def- of defending them. I'm not a Platonist, but... Um... Well, but as I say, your, your point would equally, would equally apply. You, you, you're equally relativizing, say, you, you're not going to plump for a critical realism within philosophy of science, for example, on that view. Uh, quite, no. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, I think we're probably going to ground, ground to a halt there and being able to argue. <laughs> my brain is starting to hurt. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you a completely non-philosophical question. Um, <laughs> is there such a thing? <laughs> uh, you brought up the argument from desire. The yeah. Argument, uh, the fine-tuning argument. And... It, it seems like it went from being, you know, look at the, the complexity of the eye, how on earth could that evolve, it, it looks like it's designed. And then it went to look at the, look at the world, you know, how, how would that be, you know, suitable for us. And then it went to the universe. And it seems to me like it's receding as science pushes it back. And it seems almost like it's mm-hmm. going to suffer from the God of the gaps uh, kind, of, kind of thing as, as science explains mm-hmm. more and more. Why do you, do you think that's the case or... If not, then why, why is it so? Yeah. Why have we got to the point where actually the fine-tuning mm. is, is the one that works, even if mm. you know, evolution... Yeah. Well, uh, I'm individually very happy to defend particular design arguments within biology, although not perhaps the eye in the way that William Paley put it forward. Indeed, there's a chapter in my book on why William Paley misapplied his own design detection criteria and wasn't careful enough in terms of the data that he appealed to uh, to support that argument. But I think... When you're talking about the fine-tuning um, argument, um, you've either got, you've either have got to the limits of what science could potentially kind of fill in a gap, gap as it were, because um, you're talking about the the overall structure of physical reality per se, or even if you then want to invoke sort of multiverses or whatever, on a, on a scientific multiverse theory, you've got some sort of scientifically describable physical reality that produces multiple <coughs> universes, which is the ultimate physically describable reality. And once you've got to the ultimate physically describable reality, um, science can describe it, but it can't explain it because it can't appeal to any other physical reality beyond it to be the explanation. So you're, you're into a metaphysical realm of is this self-explanatory or is this something that bears marks of needing explanation from outside of itself in non-physical terms? 
Um, so that's why I think um, even if all other arguments within science might are more sort of potentially open to that sort of God of the gaps um, objection, and I think they certainly are when they're in, insufficiently carefully mounted, when you're talking about the overall structure of physical reality that we're now able to discover, um, in principle you're at the limits of what you could invoke science to scientifically explain away. If, if we get that far, if we get to the point where science can't test it, and we can't, you know, if it's not testable, we can't ever know it or have any sort of uh, proof for it, um, then doesn't religion also fall short there? Because if you can't test that in any way, you've got no, no basis for the, for the belief. Yes, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't conflate being able to know things and test things with being able to know and test things by scientific method. I'm, I'm appealing to, to philosophical method as well. Um, if so, it's testable, then it's scientifically testable. I, I, I don't well, that may be a, calling a rose by any other name, but so, so example, if example, if you're appealing to, um, to metaphysical criteria... Uh, about about knowledge, about inference, about what makes for best explanations in things, um, and so on. Um, yeah, you're certainly appealing appealing to scientific data and talking about the existence of the fine tuning. But when you're inferring either that it does or that it doesn't have an explanation that you can know or not know whether or not it has one, I think you're into doing into doing metaphysics. Question. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question rather than a theoretical question? Yeah, sure. Why do you believe in God? I think it's a combination of personal experience, upbringing, um, reflection as I grew older upon those experiences and thinking, thinking that, that obvious thought, you know, do I just believe this because I'm brought up in a family that went to church? In a, in a culture where it's you know fairly uh, culturally permissible to have that belief system, etc., um, wrestling more with the, the kind of questions that, that Pete May was talking about in his talk as I grew older, um, studying philosophy at university and reading you know philosophers on the other side of the issue and so on, wrestling with their arguments for against and coming to the opinion that I still overall this was the most reasonable position, as far as I could see. Um, so you know, I, I'm certainly not going to claim to be the unbiased, um, <laughs> uh, you know, a God's eye view on the issue that nobody has. But I think all any of us can do is start from where we are, recognise as far as we can our, our sort of biases and the influences on us culturally and, and familiarly and so on, but try and, and, and wrestle with the questions honestly and according to the rules of the, the logical game and, and so on and, and see where we arrive at whilst keeping an open mind on, as Pete says, saying, I could be wrong about this. I think, it's, you know, I, I think that's very implausible, but then I know that there are other people on the other side who think that my position is very, very implausible, um, but as long as they're saying, you know, and I could be wrong and then let's keep the conversation going, I think that's... Uh, that's primary to um, sort of having civilised discourse on it rather than, you know... Was it, who was the theologian who said, um, 
civilised people argue with one another, barbarians club each other over the head with, with sticks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Grand. Thank you. Thank you.